It was a preacher who was told by his doctor that he had only a few weeks to live. And he went home feeling very sad. And he told his wife the news. And she said to him, Honey, if there's anything I can do to make you happy, just tell me. And the preacher said, You know, dear, there's that box in the kitchen cabinet that you always called your little secret. And, and you said you never wanted me to open it as long uh, as you lived. And he said, now that I'm about to go home and be with the Lord, I, I really would like it for you to show me what's in that secret box of yours. And so the preacher's wife got out the box and she opened the lid and it contained $1,000 in uh, cash and three eggs. It seemed a little bit strange. And the, egg, the pastor said to her, what are those eggs doing in the box? And she said, well, honey, every time your sermon was really bad, I put an egg in the box. <laughs> now, the preacher had been preaching for over 50 years, and seeing only three eggs in, in that old shoebox, he started to feel pretty proud about himself. And it warmed his soul. And he said, well, what about that $1,000? And she said, oh, you see, every time there were a dozen eggs in the box, I sold them and put a dollar in the box. <laughs> You know, in, in many ways, we're all a little bit like that preacher. We tend to think more of ourselves than we ought. Whenever we have the opportunity to pat ourselves on the back, we're usually more than ready. I know it may surprise you uh, that your pastor can be lifted up with pride. Of course, uh, for any of you who actually know me, it shouldn't be all that difficult for you to believe. Uh, if, you doubt, if you doubt that, just ask my wife or my kids. They can fill you in. On the details. But pride is something that each one of us struggles with. And I say struggles with, but that may not be true. Some of us may not struggle at all. We just give in to our natural tendency to become arrogant and self-serving. You see, as sinners, being proud is almost as natural to us as breathing. Sometimes it's even easier than that. And though I don't know the motivations and thoughts of your heart this morning, I can say confidently and without any fear of overstatement that every person who is present in this room is regularly tempted to seat himself or herself on the throne of your life, declaring your independence from your Creator. Of course, now that I've sufficiently buried all of us, under the weight of the guilt of our sinful pride, I'd like for us to turn our attention to Acts chapter 12 and the example of King Herod. In light of our weakness toward this particular sin, I think we ought to pay very close attention to Herod so that we can learn how to identify pride in our own hearts. And we can use Herod as a negative example to gain a better understanding of how we must deal with the temptation and sin of pride whenever we encounter it. Let's begin with the very opening verses of Acts chapter 12. We've already looked at this a couple of weeks in a row, but look right away at how Luke begins this chapter. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. 
And we were introduced to King Herod Agrippa in verse 1 as the ruler who for no apparent reason began to persecute the Jerusalem church. A bit of investigation into the history of Herod's brief reign suggests that his motivation was probably to solidify his control over the entire region by pleasing the Jews. Herod's uh, ties in Rome were tenuous at best. And so the best thing that he could do to ensure his long uh, reign and control and authority was to make sure that the people he was ruling over were happy. Any sort of rebellion would have certainly caused uh, the downfall of his rule. And so this, I think, is consistent with Luke's explanation of why Herod had Peter arrested. Because Herod liked the favorable response that he had received from the Jews when James was beheaded. And that's what he says to us in verse 3, that it was because he saw that it pleased the Jews when he killed James that he proceeded to arrest Peter. Herod was really setting himself up as the protector of the true faith, quote-unquote, of Judaism. Because he was attacking these upstart Christians, the ones who had ignored the food laws, who had actually fellowshiped and spent time in the homes of Gentiles. And so he was, to the people, trying to set himself up as some sort of protector of the true faith and some sort of very faithful religious person. And of course, not only that, in arresting Peter, he was trying to do that, but the fact that he delayed Peter's execution during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're, we, Luke doesn't say it exactly here, but we can, I think, fairly, fairly easily see that he was trying to make sure that he didn't lose any of the goodwill that he had gotten by desecrating the feast. I don't think Herod was really interested in keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread all that much. But I think he knew that his audience, his subjects, would be very upset if he were to have Peter killed during the feast. And so it was a very calculated political move on his part to hold Peter in jail until after the feast. Everything that Herod did in, in, in killing James and then arresting Peter and then holding Peter and waiting until after the feast, all of those moves were very carefully calculated to maximize his political benefit with the people. He was trying to curry favor with the Jews. You see, the truth is, it was pride which led Herod to persecute the church in order to maintain a positive public image. And this is the first identifying mark of pride that we see in Herod. That he cared more about what others thought of him than about doing what was right. That's the first aspect. The second thing we see, and we want to skip down to verse 17. We're going to skip over. We've already talked about Peter in jail and the angel coming and freeing him, all that. We want to skip down to verse 17. Peter had been freed miraculously, divinely rescued from the prison, and then he found himself meeting with the church in Mary's house. Verse 17, he says, He motioned uh, to them with his hand to keep silent, and he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. 
And he said, go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And the Herod's reaction to Peter's deliverance was, was, I think, very important for us to see. Herod didn't react by trusting in the God whose power had overruled his authority. The God whose wisdom had proven Herod's plans to be foolish. Instead, Herod angrily put Peter's guards to death. You see, this is important. We looked at this last week. The the reaction of Herod was one of unbelief. Refusing to believe what was right in front of him. That God had intervened. That God had done something miraculous and Herod couldn't see it. He wouldn't see it. Because he was determined. He was determined to, to, to go his own way and to reject God here. It was pride that moved Herod to focus on the guards. Rather than see that God had supernaturally come to Peter's aid. Now, even the simple servant girl Rhoda could see God's hand evident in Peter's rescue. But Herod, because he had ignored God from the beginning, he had no other conclusion that he could come to than that Peter must have had help from the inside. Herod was not an open-minded rejection of God after carefully weighing the evidence. It was a defiant and prideful rebellion against God's rule and authority. In fact, there may even be some here this morning who are still not really Christians. True disciples of Christ. And the reason that you are not is because in your pride, you're still defending your own good works. Defending your baptism, your church membership, your parents' faith. Your unbelief, even after you have heard the gospel preached, is an indication of the pride which stands between you and the Savior who died for you. This is the second identifying mark of pride that we see in Herod. That he continued in unbelief even when he was faced with God's direct intervention in his life. But now I'd like to really direct our attention to the last verses of this chapter or this section. Because this is really where we see the culmination of the pride of Herod. Let's begin there in verse 20. We, the end of verse 19, we skipped. He, he went down, it says, from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace. Because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Well, this final chapter in the life of Herod puts his pride on full display. 
And it reminds me of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, of, of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4. In, in that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar was warned in a dream that his arrogance would trigger God's judgment. We're told that exactly one year after he had that dream and after Daniel had interpreted it for him, he was surveying his royal palace. And Nebuchadnezzar said this, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And while the words were still on his lips, God's judgment was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated for seven years. We're told that he became insane. That he he wandered about in the fields, eating grass, his hair growing long, his fingernails growing to be like claws, completely losing his mind for seven years. And seven years to the day, we're told that his mind returned. He stood up, he walked back into the palace, and he acknowledged that God truly was God. The cases of Herod and Nebuchadnezzar are strikingly similar, I think. In both cases, the kings elevated themselves to the place of God. They experienced God's judgment instantly for their prideful arrogance. And ultimately, God received glory at their expense. We, were, we find here that Herod did not deny the crowd's blasphemous chant, and he did not give God glory. And so he was destroyed, even while Peter remained alive. Herod's downfall began with the, with the crowd's flattery. I'd like you to see that. Look there again at verse 20. We have some background information. We're told that Herod had had some sort of a conflict with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is the people of Phoenicia on the northern, uh, the coast just north of Israel. We don't really know exactly what that conflict was. But I think it's important. Luke gives us this background information, and it's very, it's very important. You know, it may seem kind of strange in the middle of this, all of a sudden Luke's talking about some sort of conflict uh, you know, some sort of political issue that Herod had to deal with. But it actually goes to show us what was motivating the people in this crowd. You see, these people were not really interested in Herod. They were interested in one thing, getting food for themselves and their country. That's what we find. They, they had had a conflict with Herod. And so they had bribed, presumably, Herod's uh, personal assistant, Blastus. And the hope that he would help them enter negotiations with Herod so that we're told there uh, at the end of verse 20 so that they could receive, continue to receive food. In fact, we don't take time to go there, but you can go all the way back to the Old Testament times of David and Solomon. And in those days, we find that they had made arrangements and treaties with the king, Hiram, the king of Tyre, to send food in exchange for some of the wealth that Tyre had. Because Israel, their uh, agriculture was abundant, and Phoenicia was was not. They they didn't have uh, an abundant supply of agricultural goods. 
And so this was a, this was a long-standing arrangement. For centuries they had done this, had traded with the Israelites for food. And Herod's position here is important. And so these people have come to Herod and they're trying to get this all worked out. And that's this is kind of the setting that we have here. These people were Roman subjects, many of them probably Roman citizens. And so they were used to deifying their rulers. That was no surprise. But I don't think there's any reason for us to think that they actually believed that Herod was a god. They were interested in getting their treaty signed, having the continuation of food sent to them. This was completely, this was complete flattery on their part. There was no sincerity here. They were just flattering Herod, trying to seek any advantage they could find. Luke tells us that there was a set day, verse 21, that Herod uh, stood up to speak to them. Uh, we, we find uh, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, offers us an account of the events of that day, and he tells us that it occurred during a festival that was celebrating Caesar's victory, mil uh, military victory, and every five years they would have this celebration. The town of Caesarea was named after Caesar. And so they would celebrate this, and Josephus tells us it was on this anniversary that was, they would have games and a whole celebration and feasts. And Herod, at that time, chose that day to speak to the crowd. And this is what Josephus tells us about that day. He says, on the second day of these games, he says, he, he, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early on uh, in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, this is what Josephus says the crowd actually said, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Herod, you are not a man, you are a god, they were saying. And Josephus says this, Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Even the secular historian, Josephus, understood that Herod was hearing blasphemy and he refused to reject it. He refused to repudiate it, nor did he offer any glory to God. Luke tells us in verse 23 that an angel immediately struck him. And thus God's judgment fell on this arrogant king. Josephus' account varies only slightly with Luke's, and it's not very difficult to see how they fit together. Here's what Josephus says. He says, A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. Luke mentions what, what Josephus leaves out, that Herod was eaten by worms. 
You see, not only did Herod die as a result of God's judgment, but I think the fact that Luke points out that he was eaten by worms, just disgusting and humiliating. But I think it points out to us that, that in death, Herod was helpless. He was in great pain, and ultimately he was brought to nothing. And you see, this is the final identifying mark of Herod's pride. He elevated himself to the place of God, accepting the worship and adoration of others, and refusing to offer any such worship to God. This is not a difficult passage this morning. Not a lot of details we have to consider. No extended treatment required. Just very simple. But I want you to think this morning about Herod and his example. I'd like for you to compare that to your own life. The first mark of Herod's pride was that he cared more about what the Jewish crowds thought than about doing what was right. What about you? Do you care more about what others think than about what is right? The second mark of Herod's pride was his refusal to believe the truth about God that was presented right in front of his very eyes. His continued unbelief. What about you? Have you continued to disbelieve God's word? Refusing to submit to its authority and wisdom? Afraid of what others will think? Or simply determined to trust your own way? And the third, the third thing that Herod did was he set himself up as God. And what about you? Have you set yourself up as Lord of your life? Following your own desires? Taking credit for things that God has given you? Or things he has done for you? When any of these things are true, you're guilty of the sin of pride. The only reason for Herod's horrible punishment was his arrogant refusal to give God the glory he rightly deserved. So let's not think that God will just overlook pride in our lives. In the Old Testament, we find that God describes himself as jealous, refusing to share his glory with anyone or anything else. I find it interesting. We read in Exodus 34 and verse 14, God worshiped or God warned the Israelites against worshiping idols. And he said this, "You shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God." And then in Deuteronomy 4:24, God told the next generation of Israelites as they were preparing to enter the land of Canaan, he said this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I would suggest to you that God is just as jealous today as he was in ancient times. The book of Acts, we see it. God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. Why? Because in their arrogance and pride, they deceived or attempted to deceive the Holy Spirit. 
You can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many years after the events that we're reading about in Acts chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 11. We find there were, there were Corinthian Christians who were dead. God had killed them in judgment. Why? Because in their pride, they had lifted themselves up against one another in the church. They had caused divisions within the church because they foolishly thought they were better than the person sitting next to them or a few rows up or a few rows back. And then on top of that, they had come to worship God even while acting in such a prideful way toward others. Clearly, we should take the sin of pride very seriously because God does. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea, causing a tragic loss of life. The news of the disaster was further darkened, however, when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident, which hurled hundreds of passengers into the icy waters. You see, the tragedy was not traced to some major problem like a breakdown in radar or thick fog. The blame was attributed to human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. Both could have taken evasive action to avert the collision, but according to the news reports, neither one of them wanted to give way to the other. It seems that each was just too proud to yield and make the first move. By the time they saw the error of their ways, it was too late. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to suggest this morning that if you or I act like Herod, that we'll have the same fate that Herod had. Not necessarily in the same way. But I just want you to understand how serious this is. If it was pride in Herod that caused God to judge him and destroy him, I think that shows us just a little bit how much God hates pride. How serious this is. As we consider the example of Herod, let us seek out areas where pride has built a stronghold in our lives. So that we may confess it as the sin that it is and forsake it. Trusting in God's merciful forgiveness. You know, humility is the first step of discipleship. Because it's humility that causes us to leave behind all of our own attempts at pleasing God and trust only in the finished work of Christ on the cross to pay completely for our sins. You know, too often we hear the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection only to be blinded by our pride, unable to admit just how wicked and helpless we really are. And if we in our pride refuse to admit our need of Jesus Christ and refuse to trust in him completely, then our end will be the same as Herod's. I would say this to you this morning. That if you refuse to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, refuse to turn from your own attempts at self-righteousness, your religiosity, 
your moral behavior. All of those things mean nothing compared to your sin. And if you refuse to to, to turn from that and trust in Christ, then the final result of your pride will be exactly the same as Herod's. You see, Herod didn't just die a painful, gruesome death as a result of God's judgment. I believe, and I think that this is biblically warranted, that Herod will spend an eternity separated from God, suffering the eternal punishment of hell for his arrogant refusal to trust in Christ. And if you continue in unbelief today, you are risking the same end. An eternity spent in hell. Why? Because of your pride. As we close this morning, I'd like for us to consider as alternative examples Peter and the church here in Acts 12. I won't have to spend a lot of time on this. We've already talked about this the last two weeks. But both Peter and the church here in Acts chapter 12 give us examples of godly humility, which is the opposite of sinful pride. Two weeks ago we saw Peter resting peacefully in the prison knowing that his death was quickly approaching. We could read about it there in verse 5. Peter was kept in the prison. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. What was Peter doing the night before he was to die? Sleeping. Why? Because Peter was trusting that God was working out his purpose and his plan in Peter's life. And we contrasted that two weeks ago, if you remember, with Peter's uh, words the night before Jesus died. You remember what Peter said, bragging about his commitment to Christ? Looking around at the other disciples and saying to Jesus, you know what, even if all of these guys leave, even if all of these guys run scared, I won't. I, Jesus, I'm a true disciple. I'm a true, these guys may all be phonies, but not me, Peter said. (coughs) That was Peter, filled with pride, boasting about himself and his commitment to Jesus Christ. And we know the result. That that very night, three times, Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. You see, pride had crushed Peter before. And here in Acts chapter 12, we see Peter not proud, not lifting himself up, not shaking his fist at God and saying, God, I want more time. I'm not done yet. My my plan hasn't been finished. That wasn't Peter's attitude. He was sleeping, resting in God's plan and his purpose. I really honestly believe that Peter had no idea that he was going to be walking around alive the next day. I believe that Peter had no idea that he would have years and years of ministry ahead of him. I think Peter was completely convinced that God's time for him was done. 
that he had fulfilled the role that God had called him to fulfill, establishing the church, preaching the gospel, not just to the Jews, but opening the door to the Gentiles. And I believe that Peter, sitting there in that cell, humbled himself before God and said, God, your will is done. What an example of humility rather than pride. Not only that, but in verse 17, we already saw how Peter spoke when he was released from prison. What did he say? Now, we don't have his exact words, but remember, verse 17, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Peter didn't take any credit for his escape. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about you, but nobody in the church would have known, right? Peter was the only one in the prison who knew how he got out. The guards didn't know, I guarantee you. When Herod questioned them, they had no idea how Peter got out. They were just as surprised as everybody else. They didn't see him go and let him go. It was God who released Peter. And Peter was the only one who saw that. Because the angel disappeared before he ever made it to Mary's house. Nobody else knew. Peter could have walked in and said, hey guys, you know how good I am at getting out of prison? This is twice now. You know? I mean, he could have been lifted up in pride. He didn't do that. He walked in and said, you guys will not believe what God just did. The Lord sent an angel to rescue me from the prison. He gave all the credit to God. All the glory to God. And then last week we looked at the church there in Jerusalem. What were they doing? Verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. What were they doing? Praying. And we talked about this last week, and I said that prayer, prayer demonstrates our humility before God. Because when we pray, what we are saying is, God, you need to do what only you can do. God, I'm not pursuing all of the avenues that, that, that I think I can make things work out. God, I'm not trying to do this on my own. God, we need you. That's what we're, when we pray, we're humbling ourselves before God. We're saying, God, you are in control. God, your will be done. That's what they were doing. But they weren't just praying. And we looked at this. It wasn't just that they prayed. Because we can pray. But what do we do when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we think he should do? What did the church do in Jerusalem when they prayed for James? And it didn't work, right? They prayed for James and nothing happened. Herod killed him. Game over. Guess we shouldn't pray. What a waste of time. All that energy, I'm sure the, the overnight prayer vigils and, and all, of this, all of the energy they expended in prayer. And they said, what good does it do to pray when God doesn't answer prayer? No, that's not what they said. What we find is that after they, they, they certainly had prayed for James, and God took, allowed Herod to kill James. Then Peter got arrested, and what does the church do? Go right back to pray. They were determined to continue in prayer. Why? Because they had humbled themselves before God. And they were going to pray. And they were going to accept the will of God, even if that meant losing James in the process. Rather than questioning God's wisdom, rather than questioning the value of prayer, the church in Jerusalem trusted that God was in control. 
And they received renewed strength to continue in the face of great difficulty and hardship. You see, the opposite of pride is not speaking ill of oneself. The opposite of pride is not having a low view of oneself. If we we follow that trail, that leads us back around to this idea that we have to build up our self-esteem and feel good about ourselves. But that's not the issue here. Because the opposite of pride is not thinking too low of ourselves. It's humbly recognizing that it is God's power that works in us and through us, even though we are but flesh and weak. I love the example of Paul. Why don't you turn as we close this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The words that Paul gives us here, I, I love the way that Paul speaks, because we don't have to, in order for us to deny pride, we don't have to always be talking down about ourselves and how worthless and pathetic and loser we are and all that business. That's not the opposite of pride. The opposite of pride is true humility before God. And Paul shows us what this looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 5. The Apostle Paul says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commended light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, We don't preach ourselves. We don't commend ourselves. We don't declare to you to trust in us. And he says this didn't originate with us. He said it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shined in our hearts, so that we can give the knowledge of the glory of God. Plus, listen, this isn't about me. This doesn't originate within me. My message, my preaching, the work of the Holy Spirit that that happens, none of this, I can't take credit for any of this, Paul says. This is God through me. And then look what he says. I love verse 7. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The glory of the knowledge of God. That's what he's talking about. We have the glory of God. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have it. We possess it. And what does he say? We have it in earthen vessels. Some of the other modern translations translate this jars of clay. Clay pots. Not elegant vases, vases, whatever you want to say. Not priceless uh, pieces of art. He says, just every day, plain old earthen vessels, clay pots. We have the glory of God in them. Why? He says that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, true humility understands it's not about us. It's not within us. It's not of us. It's God through us. And that's the proper response we ought to have. 